Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome back to Indian Religions. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkaran. Uh, you can find out about me at rajbalkaran.com. More importantly, I have the pleasure today of speaking with Dr. Sabrina Mizir Hirlal, um, who is uh, an online teacher at Montclair State University, among various platforms. And we'll be talking about her brand new, fascinating book, Devotional Hindu Dance, A Return to the Sacred. Um, welcome to the podcast, Sabrina. Thank you so much for having me, Raj. Now, uh, a book about devotional Hindu dance, certainly in addition to being being an academic affair, certainly there might be a personal interest behind it. Tell us about, you know, uh, your relationship to dance, perhaps. Well, I've been dancing for as far back as I could possibly remember. I began a formal Hindu dance education when I was basically in elementary school. And um, throughout my time dancing, I have often felt reduced to a cultural object of entertainment. And so my dissertation at Montclair State focused primarily on how I educate non-Hindus about Hinduism through Hindu dance with post-colonialism in mind. But this project focuses primarily on how I educate Hindus about Hindu dance with post-colonialism in mind. They both have two very distinct pedagogical goals. I don't mean to create a dichotomy between um, Hindus and non-Hindus, but Hindus typically start from a faith-based perspective, a belief in God, whereas non-Hindus may not begin from that perspective. So I have two very different um, ways of um, educating Hindus and non-Hindus, and my texts, both of them reflect that. That's so fascinating. Maybe we can speak a little later about um, students um, who I engage at the online School of Indian Wisdom. Some of them are from Indian origin, some of them are not. Um, All are fascinated with for lack of a better word, Indian spirituality, philosophy, mm-hmm. mythology, right. religion, yeah. and different strategies are required mm-hmm. at times, for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, that's really fascinating. Um, oh, uh, there's just, where do I start? Okay, uh, what's the book about? What's the primary core topic or takeaway of the book? Okay, well, basically, the back cover actually does a really good job at sharing the syn- synopsis. My book sheds light on the purpose of Hindu dance as devotional. I explain the history of Hindu dance and how colonization caused the dance form to move from sacred to a westernized system that emphasizes culture. Post-colonialism is a main theme throughout the book because religion and culture 
do not remain static. I point to, in my book, a post-colonial return to Hindu dance as a religious sacred dance form while positioning Hindu dance in the Western culture in which I live. I wrote this book basically because I'm deeply concerned with the problem of Hindu dance as primarily cultural. My problem is that Hindus have come to view Hindu dance with a westernized lens. Hindu dance is no longer performed primarily by students to worship the supreme being. Instead, students perform mostly on stage for cultural events. Many of the West Indian dance schools, and by West Indian, I mean Caribbean, Guyana, Trinidad, Suriname, Um, Those dance schools typically have dance teachers who teach students about the technical movements of dance, but they do not teach students about the Hindu ethic of dance as conveyed in Hindu scriptures. So I make a distinction in my book between dance teachers and dance gurus. Basically, my problem in this book is helping Hindus to understand that Hindu dance is a Hindu art that cannot be stripped of Hinduism. Hindu dance is not a mere cultural art to be performed on stage. I wish to help Hindus recognize that the British who colonized India, along with Western influence, caused Hindu dance to become primarily cultural and return it back to its sacred form. Would you be primarily uh, referring to uh, Hindus in the diaspora, particularly in the West Indies? Uh, Would you be referring to Hindus at large in various parts of India? Um, Behind this question that I'm asking is this this idea of... uh, uh, do most Hindus not see dance as sacred? Or are you saying that currently, more or less across Hindudom, uh, there's this decoupling of the, the, the entertainment and, and the sacred in Hindu dance? This is based on my experiences. So I'm referring to Hindus that I have encountered throughout my life and experiences that I have had dancing for a primarily Hindu audience throughout my life. And um, I've danced in Canada, I've danced in the United States, I've danced in South America. I have not performed in India or danced in India. I have not really um, been exposed to Hinduism as practiced in India because I have not traveled to India. So when I'm talking about Hindus, and currently I'm talking about the Hindus that I have encountered throughout my many experiences. And that involves many populations of Hindus, not just, you know, one particular group. That's another important point about the book, the, the data, the methodology. Mm-hmm. And this, this Say a bit more about that for us. Okay. So essentially, I maintain a self-study journal of my dance experiences where I'm very vulnerable and brutally honest with myself. This is based on the self-study methodology, which I will be happy to elaborate on. For this project, I reflected on selected dance experiences where I danced primarily among Hindus. This was very challenging for me because I developed my self-study journal for this project years after my experiences. Nevertheless, in my self-study journal, I philosophized about very specific questions that helped me to think about how to teach primarily Hindus about Hinduism through dance. My journal also consisted, though, of my very intimate personal dance experiences where dance helped me personally to connect to the divine. So a key component of self-study is to share your findings with someone trustworthy. 
For this reason, I share my dance journal with my peer scholars who converse with me about my reflections. I explained that term peer scholar in my first text, Confronting Orientalism, a self-study of educating through Hindu dance. A peer scholar is basically a critical friend, but I choose to use the term peer scholar because I feel that it's less combative. And also it describes a colleague, not someone who is just going to be, you know, a critical uh, friend um, in the sense that they're kind of just strictly um, challenging you with um, friendship kind of in mind. A peer scholar does not necessarily need to be a friend. It could be a colleague. And so I'm making a distinction between um, the way I use the term peer scholar and the way I use the term critical friends. And I do that in my first book. But at any rate, my peer scholars, they help me to challenge my assumptions and confirm my suspicions, which helps me to engage in a philosophical analysis of my data and my themes for my book basically emerge from that data. Would you say this is a trend in scholarship or could you tell us a bit about more the context of this kind of methodology? Sure. Well, self-study is a viable philosophical research method, according to the American Education Research Association. It focuses on improvement aimed pedagogy and is often lifelong. It doesn't have an end. For me, at least, it doesn't have an end because I will always reflect on self-improvement. For this part of my particular ongoing self-study, I pay close attention to how I develop pedagogy to teach about Hinduism through dance, especially among Hindus. But at the same time, I wish to teach those who wish to learn dance devotionally and viewers who are going to view the dances. I'd like to teach them too, so that they gain an education about Hinduism through Hindu dance. Um, Self-study overall It's a really wonderful methodology because it provides the opportunity for the scholar to grow um, from an inner perspective. You know, you're focused on your self-improvement. You're focused on your personal growth and you are extending that personal growth and that inner growth into your academic work. So it's very, very intentional. I find the methodology to be very, very powerful, not just for me, but also for many of my self-study colleagues. And then would one toggle between their experience and then the analysis of their experience or say a bit more about that? Because for some, that might be a new methodology. It might even for some, at least historically, be counter what scholarship uh, should or, or could be. So say a little bit about that tension or that process within yourself. So I will give the example using my data. My data is my self-study journal, as I said. The first step is to be absolutely, brutally, hardcore, honest with yourself when you're writing in the journal or recording the journal. Sometimes I do video journals where I speak. Sometimes I do uh, typed journals where I write. But the first step is to be absolutely, brutally honest. There's absolutely no sugarcoating in the self-study journal. It's very intimate. It's very personal. It shares your most innermost thoughts. Okay. Then you share them with your peer scholar or your critical friends. For me, I share my self-study journals with my peer scholar. 
Now, my peer scholar will dissect my journal and will really look at all of my experiences and give me a lot of feedback and comments to really, really help me, push me, press me to really think about my assumptions and the feelings that I've had that I've expressed in my journal. Once I get my journal back from my peer scholar, um, we go back and forth until we feel comfortable with moving on to the next journal. So there are deliberations going back and forth until we decide that we're ready to move on, until we've worked through all of the concepts or the issues or the themes that have arisen in the journal. So it's a constant back and forth. And um, when we're ready, then we move on to the next. And we usually do also have video meetings where we'll meet and we'll discuss, you know, face-to-face through a virtual medium about the things that have arisen in the journal. So this is what really helps you to challenge assumptions and confirm suspicions in self-study. This is what really helps me to do that because I am speaking to a very trusted colleague who's really working through those issues and those dynamics with me. Your theoretical models that you draw on for the study, are they uh, in place uh, from the genesis of the study or do they get folded in later on? Like what's that like? Yes, well, it kind of takes on a life of its own, you know? Indeed. I remember talking to my peer scholar and we were working on my self-study for teaching. So I do have a self-study for teaching. You know, when I'm going into the classroom, I would usually do a kind of a, a video before I enter the classroom and then after I leave the classroom to kind of talk about my teaching day. And we were deliberating about my pedagogy for that project. And um, we ended up talking about um, my dances. I think I may have danced for one of my classes and the dance was a part of the journal. And I was expressing this issue that I've had with um, dancing among Hindus. And um, my peer scholar said to me, well, why don't you dance at home intentionally thinking about your phenomenology and thinking about things that arise? Um, I dance at home all the time, but my peer scholar was asking me to dance with a very specific um, questions in mind, kind of. And um, that kind of created the space for me to really think about um, using dance in a different way for self-study research. Simultaneously, though, you know, the COVID-19 pandemic caused many mandiras or temples to close their doors And um, I love to dance. (laughs) If I am at a mandir, a temple, and I am sitting up front, um, my family typically always, you know, we're always up front in the mandir, and um, my eyes are closed, and the pundit or priest, for lack of a better word, is saying the mantras, prayers, or someone is singing um, songs, I'm dancing in my mind. And um, that's very, very powerful for me. So with the satsangs being virtual during the pandemic, I was able to now dance in front of my living room TV, you know, and I was able to dance to my heart's content. And as I'm dancing, I'm often 
so full of joy thinking, well, this is how dance should be for Hindus. Dance should return to the sacred, the sacred art form where it's not just performed on stage, but it's a connection that the dancer has to the divine. And so multiple things were going on simultaneously to really help this self-study kind of come together. There were many different pieces and they all came together for me to really develop the self-study. So I eventually, when I sat down to write the book, the words were just flowing from my fingertips because everything was kind of already there. And it was just, it was just a matter of me putting all the pieces together. How is the book structured? Well, the text has five chapters. The first chapter introduces the project. I share my dance background and discuss issues with individuals gaining access to a Hindu dance education. Chapter two discusses religion and culture in the history of Hindu dance education. I discuss the distinctions between religion and culture and how the two overlap. I define devotional Hindu dance in the third chapter. I center attention on Sri Hanumanji and the concept of bhakti as I elaborate on how the devotional Hindu dancer should be before the dance, during the dance, and after the dance. Chapter four focuses on the basics of learning devotional Hindu dance. I share prerequisites for being my student. I particularly center attention on Guru Dronacharya and Ekalavya from the Mahabharata to emphasize how I develop these prerequisites. I also discuss how students should prepare to study Hindu dance, the main texts of Hindu dance, and also how to develop and learn choreography. And in chapter five, I return to my original research questions for a philosophical analysis. Then after a summary of each chapter, I move on to relate the contribution of my research, the limitations of my research, the criticisms of the text, the implications of the research, and I share my future research plans. Since you've just opened the door for that, what are your future research plans? I typically end with that question. I certainly want to ask you a couple more, but we might as well address that now that you've mentioned it. Okay. Well, this project is just beginning. I had a virtual book launch last spring for this book, and I plan on hosting a virtual book club to read this book chapter by chapter with those who are interested, Hindus and non-Hindus. After, there may be an exciting opportunity to study Hindu dance and or spiritual dance with me virtually. I'm excited about the possibilities with this project for Hindus and non-Hindus. And I must stress that even though this text is primarily written for Hindus, I am very excited to embrace non-Hindus and think about the possibilities of spiritual dance and how I can can, um, embrace non-Hindus while maintaining fidelity to the Hindu ethic of dance. But aside from the continuation of this project, I have another project that I'm working on. My Guruji, Pandit Maheshwar Tiwari, he recently passed away about two weeks ago. His paternal grandfather was Pandit Ramfir Tiwari, and he was my maternal grandmother's Guruji. My ancestors were taken as indentured laborers from India to work on British plantations in Guyana and South America. But they maintained their roots as Hindus, despite the fact that my parents' generation, they were forced to attend Anglican schools and recite Christian prayers. My maternal grandfather ran a Hindi school in his village where he worked diligently to keep Hinduism alive. 
There's so many religious Hindu leaders in Guyana and the rest of the Caribbean who are unknown to the Western world. Moreover, when I teach about Hinduism or I read about Hinduism, there is primarily a focus on Hinduism as practiced in India, but not an abundance of literature on Hinduism in the Caribbean. And so I feel called to pen a text that shares the biographies of the prominent Hindu leaders of the Caribbean to remember the legacy of these historical figures, especially those within my own ancestry. So I'm very excited to work on that project as well. Would you say there is a, uh, a subfield or an emerging subfield of Caribbean studies or, or Hinduism in the Caribbean or, or Guyana studies? Or tell us a little bit about that. I definitely know that it's there, but I don't feel that it's in the, the front. <laughs> you know, I feel like it's very much concealed. I, and I feel that many people of the Caribbean do not know <laughs> that the field exists. You know, the field is there kind of in academia, among academics, among scholars, but it's not um, revealed for the general public, you know? Yeah, that, that tension, it's interesting. Uh, that uh, strikes me as common to, to, to most of academia. And really, that is the impetus behind the New Books Network to get the fruits of scholarship out to, you know, folks regular folks who might benefit from or enjoy knowing um, what it is we, we churn out uh, in academic research. Uh, you mentioned something about um, the book being for Hindus primarily, um, perhaps interested non-Hindus would be, um, would also benefit from it. So tell us who is the particular audience or who would most be interested or benefit from the book, whether you situate them culturally or religiously or um, by subfield, you know, who's this book really for? Well, post-colonial scholars could use this project as an example of de-orientalization that calls for post-colonial pedagogy. Most post-colonial scholars will tell you that Orientalism is a theory by Edward Said that emphasizes how the West often misrepresents the East and creates this imagined notion of what the East should be that's not based on the actual lived realities of Easterners. So this project can serve to motivate post-colonial scholars to continue the development of post-colonial pedagogy to combat the residual effects of colonization. Philosophers may continue to think about the role of phenomenology and ethics in Hindu dance as the dancer dances and the viewers view the experiences of the dancer and perhaps have their own experiences too. Religious studies scholars may focus on religious experiences and spiritual experiences that the dance prompts. And um, moreover, religious studies scholars might engage with this text as they teach about Hinduism in a de-orientalized manner. But perhaps the most significant contribution of this project is that it sheds light on the origin and purpose of Hindu dance. The text offers a pedagogy for a de-orientalized Hindu dance education and provides an avenue to return Hindu dance to the mandirs or the temples. Hindus especially who read this text may advocate for devotional Hindu dance to be a part of satsangs or religious gatherings on a religious basis and on a regular basis. And dance here does not need to be technically filled with intricate choreography. Instead, I'm advocating for simple choreography that devotees 
can join in as dancers dance with bhakti um, from their heart. So um, Hindus especially can use this book as a tool to help them learn how to enrich their worship. Non-Hindus, I am very curious and excited to think about the the avenues that will open up with non-Hindus reading this book with me, hopefully. Um, My original thought is that uh, non-Hindus will gain insight into the complexities of Hindu dance and into the complexities of Hinduism by reading this book. And they may also be open to discussing how to negotiate the boundaries of religion and culture and think about spiritual dance perhaps as an alternative um, to learning Hindu dance and be willing to study spiritual dance with me. You know, and I must point out though, that I did hold a dance workshop at Drew University where I did do this. I did teach primarily non-Hindus spiritual dance while maintaining fidelity to who I am as a Hindu dancer, being careful to not orientalize or misrepresent Hindu dance and also embracing the opportunities to uh, be with non-Hindus in a dance setting. What do you think primarily, uh, to use the phraseology of your project, what, what, what can Hindus learn about Hinduism? What is, what is there to be taught or learned? How would you characterize that? There is so much to be taught or learned. Um, but I would say for the dance perspective, from the dance perspective, the main aspect to be learned in this book is that Hindu dance has an ethic of Hindu dance. There is an ethic of Hindu dance based on Hindu dance scriptures. The Natya Veda or the Natya Shastra is perhaps one of the most important texts in Hinduism on Hindu dance. And many dancers are sadly unaware of it. So I would say that the the biggest educational gain for Hindus to learn about Hinduism in this book is that it sheds light on the Hindu scriptures of Hindu dance and discusses what you should learn if you're going to study Hindu dance from a Hindu perspective. You know, there are also many, um, many insight into different parts of Hinduism in my book. So for instance, I discuss bhakti and I center attention on Sri Hanumanji to do this. And I outline how I arrive at my conclusions of bhakti based on the examples of Sri Hanumanji, which um, is a great being that many Hindus worship. And I also center attention on the Mahabharata, Ekalavya and Guru Dronacharya, as I talk about the Guru Shishya relationship and the kind of relationship that I expect with my students. You know, so most of all, the text really outlines prerequisites. It's basically saying if you want to study Hindu dance, read this text first because it will provide an introduction. And then let's get involved with studying Hindu dance together. It's basically the introductory text for studying Hindu dance, at least with me. Was there anything else about the book that you hope we touch on? Um, I think you covered a lot <laughs> in my text. I'm very grateful for the opportunity to have so much uh, time to share with you about my book. Um, there's nothing really specifically that I would like to add. You know, I think we... 
we covered a great deal. We discussed a great deal. Are there any further questions you'd like to ask me? No, I think we've we've um, we've been able to put the the the, um, the scaffolding or the structure, the gist of the book, on the radar of of listeners, of which there are a number of. Um, uh, there's surprisingly a number of downloads monthly for the podcast. Um, and the listeners vary between lifelong learners, um, uh, Hindus wanting to learn more about scholarship about Hinduism or Hinduism itself, um, our colleagues, uh, grad students, uh, budding grad students. So I, I think we've, we've done a decent job covering the overall thrust of the book. Um, I wouldn't mind asking you a question or two about your online teaching, if you don't mind. Mm-hmm. Sure. So currently you teach at uh, Montclair State University among other platforms. Is that correct? Yes. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Is that, is that, a, a, is that a post-COVID uh, thing? Or I, I, I happen to be slightly remotely interested in online teaching. Uh, <laughs> hence these questions. So, so what's that like for you? It's wonderful. I love teaching online. It's really given me a chance to develop my contemplative pedagogy for online teaching and learning. Um, one of my chairs from one of my campuses said to me that they wish I was in the classroom because students tend to gravitate towards me and have a very bubbly and perky personality. And my students generally love me in the classroom. But I do feel that I've been able to recreate that safe environment online. You know, I have an article out on how I engage in contemplative pedagogy and a YouTube video out on how I engage in contemplative pedagogy, particularly in the classroom. I have a very set structure (laughs) for my class. You know, I have an introduction. I have a meditation that I do with my students. That's always optional. We have our philosophical analysis and we have some kind of class closure. And um, it's very powerful, my in-person teaching. So I've been able to take that in-person teaching and my contemplative pedagogy and transfer it to my online classroom. So my online classes have a set format. Now I teach traditional online classes, which means that it's self-paced. I don't have uh, Zoom classes where my students log in and I log in and we teach through a virtual medium face-to-face. My classes are traditionally online and I'm still able to provide my class with an introduction for the week. I'm still able to do the guided meditations, philosophical discussions and have some kind of a a class closure, you know, for the week. So I really, really, really enjoy it. I find that I've been able to create a very safe and conducive learning environment for my students they all seem very happy and very friendly. And I really couldn't ask for anything more. I really love online teaching. And I think that um, it will be my preference for quite some time. And to answer your question, I didn't start teaching online during the pandemic. I've been teaching online since before the pandemic, mostly because of travel constraints Um, So I teach for a college in Connecticut and I live in New Jersey, so would have to be online because I wouldn't travel for adjunct work that kind of a distance. And um, also I teach for St. John's in New York and I taught for University of South Carolina Aiken in South Carolina. So I have quite a number of teaching um, 
classes that are not very close to me geographically. So that is another reason why the classes are online for me. Yeah, there's a there's a lot that you say there that that resonates or I can relate to. Um, I was a little bit weary of the whole concept of online teaching initially, and now it's now it's it's really primarily what I do. It's um, I underestimated the extent to which one could have an impactful experience through online media, mm-hmm. and it's just a question of of revamping and being attentive to a pedagogy that works. But it's it's really fascinating. I do a fair bit of online teaching. Most of it's non-credit. So um, at the Oxford Center for Hindu Studies, continuing studies there, um, uh, yogic studies, um, the, the school, my own school, the School of Indian Wisdom. Uh, and once in a while, you know, I really like to have a hand in corrupting the youth every now and then. So <laughs> I'll do, a, I'll do, a, <laughs> I really do. I quite love uh teaching undergrads they're at a certain age where uh they're looking for for content for skills they're looking for whatever life tidbits you can offer them mm-hmm. and so mm-hmm. i have an upcoming uh, uh adjunct uh, as you'd call it contract for leftbridge university i think in the in the winter this winter 2022 so every once in a while i have a hand in corrupting youth as i say but primarily it's um lifelong learners but nevertheless it's all online and it's all fascinating and it's all just sort of um I uh, started before COVID, but COVID certainly expedited <laughs> the situation. Mm-hmm. Really interesting times that we're in. Um, it was great talking to you today. So thank you for appearing on the podcast. Thank you so much for inviting me. I hope we can have another one sometime. <laughs> Absolutely. For your next book, you're welcome on the podcast anytime or to perhaps publicize developments as we'll do on the podcast in the field. Um, great. So for those of you listening, we have been speaking with Dr. Sabrina Mazir Hirlal, who is teaching online at Montclair State University among, as you've heard, uh, many an online space. Um, we've been talking about her, her brand new 2021 Palgrave Macmillan publication, Devotional Hindu Dance, a return to the sacred. Until next time, um, stay safe, stay sane, keep reading, keep listening, and keep contemplating the sacrality of Hindu dance. Take care. <laughs>